Damien Blankets up with the Quantified Body here. This is a show where we look at cutting edge tools and tactics to improve our body's health, performance, and longevity. And we do it from a quantified perspective. Always looking for data, such as biomarkers, for some real evidence that this really works. We have guests that range from the academic researchers and experts doing the research in biomarkers, tools, and tactics to improve our lives, to real-life experimenters who tell us about their biohacking experiments and what biomarkers they tracked at home. So the last couple of weeks, I've been talking to a lot of people about my recent five-day water fast, which was in episode 28. The most interesting thing that I learned from this was how much fear strikes into the heart of most people when we talk about stopping to eat, stopping eating and fasting. Others, also unlike me, find the experience pretty uncomfortable. I kind of enjoyed it, but that's not what happens across the board based on other people's experiences I've learned. So, what if we could get similar benefits to fasting without going through the pain, mental or physiological, of the fast? This is what today's subject is about. We're talking about a little molecule that we were introduced to in episode 22 with Bob Troyer in his experiments. This was oxaloacetate. It has been and it continues to be studied for benefits similar to caloric restriction and fasting. Most of all, blood sugar regulation improvement and potential anti-aging properties. For those who follow Dave Asprey, his upgraded aging supplement is actually oxaloacetate. To talk about oxaloacetate, I invited the man behind it onto the show. His name is Alan Cash. I first learned about Alan from the Bulletproof Conference. Alan presented at last year's conference, and he has spent many years researching the effects of oxaloacetate, tracking down studies and even other researchers working on it as far as Japan and refining the delivery mechanism for it so it could deliver benefits to humans. When they first discovered it, it was actually a relatively unstable molecule, so we weren't actually able to get access to it and take it as a supplement. But Alan's work has changed all that. In this interview, we get into the nuts and bolts of how oxalostate works, the current study is underway, and some different ways you can use it depending on what benefit you are seeking from it. As usual, to get this episode in a done-for-you format where we separate out the biomarkers, the tracking part we talk about in the show, as well as the tools and tactics, to make it an easy framework for you to get hold of it and just use, so we separate everything into just tracking, making sure we're getting the results and the tools and tactics, whatever we are doing in order to improve ourselves. You can get that all if you go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash episodes and pick out this episode, episode 30, there. You can also get that delivered to you every time an episode comes out in your email inbox. To do that, go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash newsletter, pop your email in there, and you'll get that automatically going forward. Without further ado, let's get into this episode. Meet Alan Cash. The Quantified Body. New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease, and greater longevity. In The Quantified Body, we explore this promise to find out where it is creating real-world results, improving bodies, and improving lives. Adam, thank you so much for joining the show today. Well, thanks. It's always a, uh, a thrill to uh, talk about oxaloacetate. First of all, I'd just like to get a bit of background story as to why you got interested in this at first. What's the story basically behind how you got interested in oxaloacetate and started getting involved with it? That's uh, a pretty weird story. It turns out I had a brain condition where nerves sometimes grow very close to arteries. And uh, I had an artery that wrapped around my nerve and Every time my heart beat, it acted like a little saw and eventually cut in through the myelin sheath that surrounds the nerve and protects the nerve and went directly into a, uh, a nerve bundle that uh, was a major nerve bundle in, in my neck. And uh, the result was instantaneous pain. And uh, I found out that I was very lucky. I, I was able to get it corrected. They just went into the back of my head and uh, followed the nerve until they could find where it crossed over. And they untangled it and put in a piece of Teflon. So now I don't stick. 
but the pain is 100% gone, which is really nice, a, a miracle of modern science, because it was pretty terrible. In looking up this condition, I found that it was really a condition of aging. As we grow older, your arteries get about 10 to 15% longer, even though we're not getting 10 to 15% longer. And uh, so they have to fold over, go someplace, and it just was bad luck that it folded over next to this nerve. And as a physicist, I thought I'd look into aging and, and see what's the current state of what we can do about aging. And thankfully, at, at that time, there's a lot going on uh, with the basic fundamentals of aging and trying to understand this. In looking at all the data that's out there, that's, that's what physicists do. We take a huge amount of data and see where the kernels of truth are. Um, we try to think of E equals MC squared or F equals MA, how, how much that describes about the universe. In looking at the aging literature, the thing that stood out the most is almost nothing works, <laughs> which is, is disappointing. The one thing we did find that worked consistently throughout the animal kingdom was calorie restriction. And uh, that was discovered back in uh, 1934 in Cornell University. And it's not just a diet. It's taking what you, essentially establishing a baseline of what you'd eat if you had all the food available, and then backing off that baseline anywhere from 25 to 40%. And when you do that consistently over a long period of time, we see several things. One, we see an increase in lifespan, not just average lifespan of the group, but the maximal lifespan is also increased. And small animals that live short times, that can be anywhere from 25 to 50% increases. In primates, we've seen an increase in, in lifespan of about 10 to 18%, depending upon the test. So we're thinking in humans, we'll probably see something in that range if you calorie restrict your whole life. The other things we see, though, are a reduction in age-related diseases, such as cancer. Our animal models indicate that incidence of cancer is 55% less in animals that calorie restrict. And that's one of the most effective methods we have of, of preventing cancer that we know of incidence of neurodegenerative diseases such as Parkinson's and Alzheimer's are either reduced or, or greatly delayed. Incidences of any kind of autoimmune type issue or inflammation issues. So it's very, very powerful, this concept of calorie restriction. And it wasn't until just recently that we figured out pathways, molecular pathways of why it's working. So in terms of the actual mechanisms for what's going on in the body, when we calorie restrict, what happens? What is it that creates these, these benefits and, and these changes in our biology versus disease and longevity in general? Yeah, we've been looking at that for a long time as a question. And uh, some of the things that we looked at were, does it matter if it's the calorie restriction is with fats or does it matter if it's just carbohydrates or proteins? And what we've seen is it's pretty much across the board calories. There are various diets out there. There's a new diet every week, it seems like, that looks at restricting one form or another of calories or, or fats or proteins uh, or even specific components of proteins. But what we've seen in general in calorie restriction is it's the number of calories. So based on that, it seems like it's an energy proposition. And looking at the energy pathways, there's been focus on the ratio of two compounds uh, that, that are pretty much the same, uh, nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, or NAD, and its reduced version, NADH. So that ratio uh, which is also known as the redox of the cell, is looking at the energy of the cell. And when we have a very high NAD to NADH ratio, 
we see effects very similar to calorie restriction. So in, in terms of what that's actually doing, do we understand why the, the changes in NADH create this change in our biology? Yeah, we've been able to uh, trace this. And uh, what we see is increasing the NAD to NADH ratio. And, and you can do that through a variety of ways. But that increase is measured by a protein called AMP protein activated kinase uh, or AMPK. And what AMPK does is it monitors essentially the NAD and NADH ratio or the redox of the cell. When think of it as a seesaw. So with AMPK as the fulcrum of the seesaw and NAD on one side and NADH on the other side, when the seesaw is in one position, AMPK will then act with other proteins that translate to the nucleus and turn on genes. When the seesaw is in a different position, AMPK will work with other proteins that translate to the nucleus and turn on different genes. So let me give you a specific example. If you've had a lot to eat, your NAD to NADH ratio will be low. And AMPK will turn on genes that help with fat storage and production because you've got all this extra energy. So, hey, let's store some of it. So it will actually start producing proteins that deal with fat storage and synthesis. On the other hand, if the seesaw is in the different position, if you haven't had a lot to eat, there's no point in storing fat. And so your genes will not be making these proteins that assist in making fat production. So how can we use that information? For instance, when we trick the cells into thinking that the NAD to NADH ratio is high uh, or that the animal hasn't had a lot to eat, even if it has, we can slow down the rate of fat production, which could be interesting for people on diets. What we see is that you still gain some fat, but you just don't gain it as fast. So biochemically, there are reasons why when you go on a diet and you lose all that weight, and you stop the diet and you rebound back very quickly, we can slow down the rate of rebound if we can keep the NAD to NADH ratio up high because then the genes that are produced that create and store fat aren't being produced. So there's some really neat tricks that we can use to biohack into our systems that are existing systems. Yeah, yeah. There are quite a few potential benefits to calorie restriction. We've come across some of these before. Um, we've spoken with Dr. Thomas Seafried about purposely doing fasting for, for this kind of work as well. What are kind of the list of the main uh, big areas which people have seen this impact, like uh, diabetes? And what have you seen in your area, the areas where people are kind of meaningfully impacting this area with calorie restriction? We've actually done human trials in calorie restriction. And what we see is a reduction in fasting glucose levels in, we also see a reduction in atherosclerosis, which, you know, considering heart disease is the number one killer in America, if we can reduce that, you're going to have people living longer. That alone is huge. So that just begs the question, when people are doing these estimates of longevity, is it because you're reducing the risk of many of the kind of diseases that kill us, like cancer and neurological disorders and and, and heart disease that people are living longer and therefore you're getting a higher longevity score or they're kind of separate topics? Um, it's both, actually. Reducing these diseases is going to bring up the average increase in survival. So that would give you your average increase in, in lifespan. But there are certain people who don't get these diseases and they live a long time. But calorie restriction has been able to increase the maximal amount of lifespan. So that's making every cell in your body live longer. And we see that in our animal tests. Uh, for instance, we started off working with these little worms called C. elegans, which are used a lot in research because we understand somewhat 
the genetics of them. And one of the interesting things about these worms is once they go into adulthood, they don't produce any more cells. That's it. They only live for about 30 days, but they live with, with the cells that they have. So if we can extend their lifespan, it means that we're allowing each of their cells to live longer and to be functional for longer. And when we increase the NAD to NADH ratio in C. elegans, we see up to a 50% increase in lifespan. So as I said, it's both. It's eliminating a lot of these diseases that are associated with aging. I mean, think of all the diseases that you get when you're old that you don't get when you're seven years old. Yeah. So I'm sure you're aware of Aubrey de Grey. We had him on the podcast previously talking about the seven. He's got seven areas of aging, which are basically diseases of aging. So he's looking at it from that perspective. So in terms of oxalacetate, which is a mechanism you were using to generate that, where, where does it actually come from? What is it? Um, well, it's a human metabolite. It's in something called the Krebs cycle, which is what gives us power in, in our little mitochondria. So mitochondria can be thought of as like a little power plant. Glucose is the fuel for the power plant. So the more mitochondria you have, the more power plants you have. But you have to also have the fuel, the glucose, to, to uh, upregulate that. So oxaloacetate is one of those critical components within the mitochondria. So it's in every cell of your body already. Now, when we give it to animals, the reason we started looking at oxaloacetate is in looking at our energy pathways, oxaloacetate can break down into malate, which is another metabolite. It's found in excess in apples, okay? And as part of that reaction, it takes NADH and turns it into NAD. So it takes it from reduced into the oxidized form? Yes. And so in doing that, because you're taking something from the denominator and putting it in the numerator, it changes the ratio very rapidly. And the first person who measured this ratio change was Krebs himself. Back in the 60s, he added oxaloacetate to the cells and he saw a 900% increase in the NAD to NADH ratio in two minutes. So huge changes with uh, this human metabolite oxaloacetate. Now, oxaloacetate's got some problems. It's not very stable. It's highly energetic. Commercially, it's available through chemical suppliers but you have to store it at minus 20 degrees C. Well, if you want to make popsicles out of it, you could probably do that. But putting it into a usable supplement has been very difficult. And that's why you don't see it very often. Uh, we came up with a method to thermally stabilize it so that it can be stored at room temperature uh, for a period of up to two years without degrading. And uh, that's how we were able to introduce this into the uh, into the market. Great. So in terms of also where it comes from, I understand it's also something that's uh, freely, it's actually part of foods. So there are, there are foods which have oxalacetate in it. So it's basically a nutrient that's found in the environment. Yes, uh, absolutely. Although it's only found in very, very small amounts. There are some foods that have higher amounts of oxaloacetate, and these are foods that typically have higher amounts of mitochondria. So, for example, a pigeon breast has a lot of oxaloacetate in it because you need tremendous amounts of mitochondria to power flight. That's, that's one of the most energy-intensive things out there is flying around, but you need about 18 to 20 pigeon breasts to get the amount of oxaloacetate that we see as, as the minimum for seeing some of the gene expression changes we want to accomplish. So it, it takes a lot of pigeons. So you've determined the minimum effective dose, which is around how much? Um, so far, and this is from a human clinical trial, one of the side effects of calorie restriction in primates is it eliminates type 2 diabetes, which is, is a good thing. And it turns out they, in trying to mimic calorie restriction, which is what we're trying to do, is, is turn on these same molecular pathways, 
we looked at oxaloacetate and there was a clinical trial that was done back in the 60s in Japan. Uh, this was published and it showed that oxaloacetate reduced fasting glucose levels in diabetics. So we knew that this is one of the side effects of the calorie-restricted metabolic state. And we could look at, in humans, what is the most effective dose? And what we found is they did a range in this clinical trial of 100 milligrams to 1,000 milligrams. There were no side effects in the 45-day trial. 100% of the people saw a reduction in their fasting glucose levels, which was good because they were all diabetics. We couldn't understand why this wasn't commercialized back in the 60s. So I actually flew to Japan to interview the department that was responsible for this clinical trial. The conversation went something like this. It was, hi, I'm Alan Cash. Your department produced this paper on oxaloacetate working in diabetics to reduce fasting glucose levels. Where is the follow-on work? And they said, well, there is no follow-on work. And I said, well, why not? He said, well, because it's a natural ingredient. And I said, yeah, it's not only natural, it's, it's a human ingredient. So toxicity is extremely low. And they said, yes, but we can't get a patent on it. And that was pretty much the end of the conversation. So as far as knowing the dosing, what's effective, we already have a clinical trial showing where the minimum effect is which is 100 milligrams, which is where we, we set our sites to put out a, a nutritional supplement. Yeah. So it, was there any advantage to for like the people, if we take the most extreme example of the people taking 1,000 milligrams in that study, was there any advantage to it? Did it impact uh, blood sugar regulation differently? Yeah. Well, actually, as the dosage increases, we start looking at other reactions that oxaloacetate are involved in. And one of the main other reactions is the combination of oxaloacetate with glutamate. So oxaloacetate and glutamate link together, and that reduces glutamate levels in the brain. Now, that can be important for certain people. For instance, in a closed head injury, 20% of the damage to your brain is caused by the actual strike to the head, the damage to the tissue. 80% of the damage is caused by the after effects. And those after effects are in your brain, it releases something called a glutamate storm. Glutamate is, is one of those essential brain chemicals that you need to function properly. But if you get too much of it, it excites the neurons to the point where they die. So this glutamate storm is responsible for about 80% of the damage. And what they've been able to show now with oxaloacetate is uh, primarily in tests over in Europe. The Weissman Institute out of Israel is doing a lot of this work. And there's also uh, some people in Hungary and Spain that are, that are doing quite a bit of work with oxaloacetate. But they're able to show that oxaloacetate, if you can get it to a stroke victim or a closed head injury victim within two hours, 80% of the damage is eliminated. Wow. Would they just take a small dose or does it would have to be a... No, you got to take a lot because you have to get it into your bloodstream. And if you take, let's say, two 100 milligram capsules of oxaloacetate, we've seen the uh, data in, in the bloodstream, only about 5% gets through. Uh, the rest of it is used up in the liver and, and intestines. And that's not a bad thing because you want to keep those things healthy. But to get it so that it starts reducing glutamate levels in the brain, you want to increase its supply in the bloodstream. And uh, so you've got to take a lot. So basically after there, is it always 5%? If I take a, a thousand milligrams, is it just going to be like 50 milligrams? We don't know. Um, mm. There may be a point where you start overloading the liver and more passes through. I can tell you that we have a medical food that is directed towards people with brain cancer, because if we can reduce the glutamate levels in the brain, we see 
better results. Because people, just to get back about, is it that people with brain cancer tend to die from glutamate toxicity? Is that one of the main mechanisms for their death or is it acting on other dimensions? Uh, one of the main predictors of survival is the amount of glutamate that's produced because what the tumor does is it produces tremendous amounts of glutamate and it kills the surrounding tissues so that the tumor can grow into that area. So if you can stop that, you don't kill the tumor, you just stop it growing. And this is essentially what we're seeing with, with a product called Cronaxel, uh, which is a medical food. It's high, high dosage oxaloacetate. So you may take the equivalent of 30 to 60 capsules of the nutritional supplement per day. And what we're seeing in animal tests, we saw a 237% increase in survival. So FDA gave us an orphan drug designation for oxaloacetate for, for brain cancer. In the actual human work, we're just doing case studies right now. But in the 17 case studies that we have MRI data on, the oxaloacetate was e in conjunction with chemotherapy. So use them together. It was able to stop tumor growth or reduce tumor size in 88% of those patients. Wow, that's, that's pretty great statistics there. Yeah, considering some of these people uh, with glioblastoma, their tumors were growing at a rate of 80% per month. You can do the math there. It's not a, a great equation. And uh, we were able to bring that growth rate to, in one guy's case, is uh, 42 years old, two kids, uh, nice guy. We were able to bring that, that growth rate to zero for eight months. That's very significant when chemotherapy alone only increases survival by a month and a half. Wow, right. So you were also saying earlier, we were just discussing, you've been looking at combining oxaloacetate with fasting. We spoke to Dr. Thomas Seafried about this uh, recently, and you may be seeing potentially better results with that, or it might be... Well, what we've seen so far, fasting is, is one of the techniques used in brain cancer to slow or, or uh, retard the growth of the tumor. Uh, it's one of the few things that, that has been shown to work, especially a, a calorie-restricted ketogenic diet where you eat more fats. And the thinking behind that is that you reduce glucose levels tremendously with a ketogenic diet, and glucose is, is one of the, the things that feed the tumor. Now, the other thing that feeds the tumor, according to Dr. Seyfried, could be glutamate. And so if we can reduce glutamate levels also with oxaloacetate, we may see some impressive results. And we're, we're already starting to see that in anecdotal cases in patients. Uh, we had one young man who had a uh, slow-growing brain tumor that's been able to stop its growth with a combination of calorie restriction and oxaloacetate supplementation with our Cronaxel product. For a period of two years now. Wow. And so is he taking around 6,000? No, he his tumor is slower growing, so he's taking about the equivalent of 10 capsules a day. We've also had recently a, uh, a woman with stage 4 breast cancer. Her latest report from her PET scan and her MRI data, they can no longer find the tumor or tumors. She had like four of them. And... Uh, all she was doing was calorie restriction and uh, about 10 capsules of, of oxaloacetate. Uh, there's some real promise here, but it's very early on. Um, we don't have the clinical trial data that supports this uh, in a statistically significant manner. We just have individual cases. And although those individual cases are stunning, it's no really, it, it would not be prudent to rely upon those cases. Right, right. Have you got any plans to uh, have any clinical trials? Was that something that might be occurring soon in that area? Yeah, we're, we're actually in clinical trial uh, for a variety of conditions. One is mitochondrial dysfunction. Uh, there are certain people that are born with genetic defects that affect the mitochondria. We had one infant um, that's been on oxaloacetate now for nine months 
that is showing normal development, whereas normally with this type of defect, we would expect the uh, infant to have passed away six months ago. So that's pretty interesting. The, we're also in clinical trial for uh, Parkinson's disease uh, because anecdotally we've seen some interesting cases where the oxaloacetate has, has reduced the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. And lastly, we're in clinical trial for Alzheimer's disease. So that's, uh, we'll see how those all try out. Um, we're getting ready to start some clinical trial work in, in pediatric brain cancer, uh, because if we can get away from uh, doing chemotherapy, uh, it's just a whole better quality of life. It sounds like a lot, well, one of the main mechanisms, I mean, so, so if you're looking at Alzheimer's disease, they also use ketogenic diets. Um, and so do, do you think that it's obviously like the glutamate's helping, but do you think it's also the aspect of improving blood sugar regulation is potentially helping in all these diseases as, as well? Is that one of the factors? It certainly could be a factor. We uh, just published a paper in uh, human molecular genetics that showed that oxaloacetate increased the amount of glucose that the cells could uptake in the brain. It increased the number of mitochondria in the brain. So we not only built more power plants, but we're now having a way to fuel those power plants. And the interesting thing is that oxaloacetate is also a ketone. So you don't necessarily need glucose to fire off all those neurons in the brain, you can actually use oxaloacetate as, as a power plant, as a power source. So the other things we've seen with oxaloacetate in the brain and in animal models is a reduction in inflammation. And probably most exciting is we've seen a doubling of the number of new neurons that are produced. 10 years ago, we used to think that the number of brain cells you have is, is static, that those brain cells that you lost in college are forever gone by, by uh, imbibing in too much alcohol. But now what we're seeing is that there's an area of the brain called the hippocampus, which continues to produce new neurons. And as we age, this function decreases. So our ability to repair our brains decreases. Well, oxaloacetate in animal models doubled that rate of production. And not only did it double the rate of new neurons, but the length of the connections between the neurons was also doubled. So if you think about, well, if a neuron can connect to a neuron that's further away, you get more interesting connections and more interesting abilities to have different variables. It makes your brain more plastic is what we say. And oxaloacetate's been able to show both that, that increase in neurons and the length of the neurons. So pretty exciting work. Yeah. So brain injuries, like you're talking about brain injuries before, I guess a lot of us think about brain injuries. It's a big thing, like maybe a car crash or something, you, you have a big, serious brain injury, but you know, now they also have, they're looking at athletes, for instance, in football, you know, where they've been hitting the ball and, and areas like that. And they're seeing there's a lot of damage. So could this potentially be a tool for sportsmen? If you're playing in football, would it make sense to be taking this stuff whenever you're going to a match or something like that in case? So to reduce the kind of damage you're getting each time you're hitting the ball and so on? I think so. I mean, my daughters play uh, volleyball at, at a very high level. They're, they're uh, ones at Pepperdine and the other ones that are going to be at Hofstra next year. And occasionally they get hit in the head with a volleyball. I mean, as they're middle blockers, they go up and they just get slammed in the face. So I always have a, uh, a bottle of, of oxaloacetate in their gym bag. And if they get hit in the head, they're told to take 10 capsules right away and continue taking 10 capsules for the next week or so. I don't want to suggest that you should use oxaloacetate for any kind of disease or mostly it's a nutritional supplement. Uh, there is the medical food also that's specific for brain cancer. And I just want to make that clarification that the work really hasn't been done in clinical trial. Now, over in Europe, they are working on that. Um, they've done a lot of animal studies and 
The interesting thing they've found is that if they can get oxaloacetate into these animals that have been hit on the head with a hammer, within two hours, it reduces the amount of brain damage they experience by 80%. Uh, they're looking at a lot of things in, in Europe, and uh, it's very, very exciting work. It seems like this is a really interesting molecule because it seems to be having an impact in a, a lot of different things. Of course, it's all early stages of research, like you say, but it seems to have quite a lot of potential. I saw another study where they had combined oxaloacetate with acetyl-L-carnitine, and they were looking at their... Could you talk a little bit about that? I believe it was long-term potentiation it was impacting. Yeah, long-term potentiation uh, is a measure of how plastic your brain is, how well you can still learn. And when they go into the brain of, of animal models uh, uh, and, and give them a stroke, uh, an artificial stroke, uh, and then measure long-term potentiation, the levels drop significantly. When they use oxaloacetate or a combination of oxaloacetate and acetyl-L-carnitine, um, they saw 100% restoration of the brain's ability to learn again uh, in very short order. And this could be very important for people with stroke, uh, closed head injuries, uh, that type of thing. But again, this is early work. It's been done in animals. It's been very successful in animals. And both oxaloacetate and acetyl-L-carnitine have very low toxicity profiles. So the risks are low there, but we still need to do this in clinical trial and, and make sure that there are no unexpected results in humans. Right. Yeah, so Alcar, acetyl-L-carnitine, a lot of people, you know, it's been taken for a very long time. So in terms of toxicity for oxaloacetate, as you said, there was the trials where you had 1,000 milligrams per day. Has anything above that been tested? Because it sounds like with some people, you're actually giving like 10,000 or more in specific cases. Um, so in terms of toxicity, is there any evidence to say that it, it could be harmful in any way if, if someone overdoses or potentially someone in a specific situation? One thing I was just thinking about while, while you were talking was uh, in terms of glutamate, right? If um, you say it helps to deactivate glutamate, are in some people who are normal and you know have normal levels of glutamate, could that impact them in any way in terms of their brain performance, memory, things like that? That was a multiple question, and, and let me address uh, them, <laughs> I'm them sorry. one at a time. Uh, as far as toxicity, in order to bring this supplement into the United States, we had to prove to the FDA safety, because uh, this is considered a new dietary ingredient even though it's in just about every food we eat, but not at the levels that we're, we're giving it to people at. Uh, so we had to prove safety, and, and we spent quite a bit of money in three years of my life uh, proving safety to the FDA. One of the things we had to do is feed animals as much oxaloacetate as we could stuff into them to see at what point in time 50% of the animals would die. And what we found out is we got up to about 5,000 milligrams per kilogram of, of body weight in animals, and we still couldn't get any of them to die. Uh, as a matter Did of you get any negative reaction at all? We couldn't find but one. Um, now, what we are seeing in, in humans, uh, especially in some of these people with, with brain cancer that are taking the equivalent of about 60 capsules a day, um, we do see an increase in burping. That's interesting. <laughs> it's kind of random. Yeah. Well, it, it, it relaxes the upper sphincter muscle, uh, in the stomach. Uh, and we see an increase in burping, um, in some of the people. Hmm, that's an interesting, uh, but that's, that's about all we've seen, hmm. um, so far. So, you know, from a toxicity standpoint, uh, this appears to be a very safe molecule. Well, that's that's great. Um, do you remember the multi multi part question? Or shall I repeat it? Yeah, the second part was: What if you uh, take a lot of this and try to reduce your and you're just a normal person? What would you expect to see? Some of the things we've seen are really interesting. Um, we have a uh, an R and D project where we've developed a uh, oxaloacetate tablet 
that goes under your tongue. And so we deliver a lot more oxaloacetate to the bloodstream, which preferentially reacts with glutamate. And what we see with, with that tablet is an increase in the ability to, because if you can turn down glutamate levels a little bit in your brain, you don't have some of that repetitive cycling of, of questions. You're able to focus more. You're able to pay attention better. Um, it's kind of like the way I can explain it. It's like you've been meditating for a half an hour. So you have this incredible focus, but it's not jittery. Like if you have 10 cups of coffee, you can also have more attention, but your, your whole body is shaking. This is more, uh, you're very relaxed and you just have that increased ability to focus. It's pretty cool. It sounds like you've been testing it yourself. Uh, yeah, I, I test it always on myself because if I'm ever going to give it to somebody else, you've got to feel confident enough in its effects to try it on yourself first. Yeah. You know, it'd be nice to hear, like, how do you use oxaloacetate yourself? Do you have some kind of routine or what, what do you uh, do with it? Yes, I, I use it primarily for anti-aging because I'm, I'm after that, you see an increase in burping in some of the people. I take like three caps a, a day, uh, which is a little bit more than our recommended one cap a day, but I get it for free. So what the heck, right? I've also started working with this sublingual dose whenever I'm tired. Like if I have to drive somewhere and it's late, I, I take one and, and immediately I'm awake and my focus is there. Or if I'm in a conference and it's four o'clock on a uh, on the third day of the conference i find that uh it helps quite a bit so that's how i use it uh a lot of athletes are using this now because we've been able to measure a decrease in fatigue and an increase in endurance we don't see an increase in strength uh just an increase in endurance so a lot of endurance sport people take uh, one to two capsules about 15 minutes before competition with about 100 to 200 calories. So it sounds very quick acting in terms of you, you take it in and it's within a very short period, it's going to have that impact on. Are you talking about it's it's feeding the mitochondria, basically? I mean, you, you spoke earlier about it being uh, like a ketone. Do you think that's the mechanism there or is it or is it because it's stimulating the mitochondria somehow? Well, there's been some work out of uh, UCSD showing that oxaloacetate activates uh, pyruvate decarboxylase and allows the citric acid cycle to process faster. So you get more ATP production, uh, which would tie with the endurance effect. Uh, we've been able to measure the endurance effect almost immediately. Uh, we published that in the uh, Journal of Sports Medicine. We saw about a 10% increase in endurance. And you think, you know, 10% is not all that much. But in a lot of athletic competitions, 10% is huge. So that's the short-term effect. And that, that actually only lasts about two hours. Uh, and then if you want it again, you have to reapply. Yeah. So a marathon runner would be dosing every couple of hours. Yeah, about every two hours. The second effect, though, is longer term. We've seen that oxaloacetate supplementation increases the number of mitochondria or the, the mitochondrial density in the cell. So it produces more of the power plants so that when you feed it more glucose, you can uh, turn it into fuel faster. But that takes typically, you know, anywhere from two to six weeks to see the effect on that. And you have to make it daily we're doing is we're increasing that NAD to NADH ratio, which then activates AMPK and chronic AMPK activation has been shown to start the process of mitochondrial biogenesis or producing more mitochondria. Mm. Is there any reason we want that activated? Anything you know of like in the research where it should say like, you know, chronic activation of AMP could lead to any downsides? Another question, just to kind of give you like a bit of context to that, is it worth cycling oxaloacetate? So having a month on or a couple of months on, a couple of months off or anything like that? Yeah, a lot of supplements that deal with stressing your cells in order to get an effect, uh, they work better if you cycle them. For instance, echinacea. 
uh, echinacea works because it's an irritant. So you turn on your stress response and get a response. But if you take it all the time, your body gets used to it. Oxaloacetate doesn't work as a, uh, a stressor. It works to turn on genes and turn on uh, the development of more mitochondria. So no, you want to take it all the time. Great. And so we were discussing earlier, you know, I was just asking you about uh, potentially doing a little experiment with oxaloacetate. And you were saying that for most of the effects, it's really this aggregate, this cumulative effect. So we want to be using it for between two and six w- weeks before we see the effects. And then if we stop, it's probably going to take that amount of time before those effects uh, disappear, but they will disappear. So it is something that you really kind of have to take on an ongoing basis. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's uh well, there, there are two effects. Uh, one is a pharmacological effect, like, for instance, the reduction of, of glutamate in the brain. That happens almost immediately. So some people, when they take this, they, they get that feeling of peace uh, because they're, they're just reducing their excitatory chemical in their brain. But the uh, other effect is a genomic effect. And while your genes start producing these proteins right away, it takes a while for the proteins to be enough in number that we see measurable effects. We can see those effects in, in typically four to six weeks. For instance, blood glucose levels would be one that we've been able to trace that down to activating AMPK, which is the same thing that the uh, diabetic drug metformin does, uh, but through a different pathway and the upregulation of, of a gene called FOXO3A, which deals with glucose stability. But that takes time. It takes usually four to six weeks. So for the people at home, um, if, if they were going to design their own little experiment, it would be basically measuring blood glucose stability. Is that the main, is it like the variance which is reduced or is it actually lowered in general? Yeah, one experiment that they could try is start off with a baseline go to the uh, drugstore, get a glucose meter and, and some uh, little paper uh, strips and uh, take your fasting glucose levels for maybe a couple of weeks. You see the variability because even in fasting glucose levels, you're, you're going to see the levels bounce all over the place. And then uh, start oxaloacetate supplementation, one or two capsules a day, uh, for a month and take your daily glucose levels. You won't see much change for about three weeks. And then what we typically see is a slight reduction in non-diabetics is a slight reduction in fasting glucose levels. And more importantly, reduction in the swing. So you don't see as high a high and as low a lows. And, and that reduction is typically on the order of 50 to 60%. So you you have better glucose regulation. And in normal people, that's not a bad thing. Right, just we're talking in terms of performance, just throughout the day, I think people's performance goes up and down. And some of that, some of the reasons people try new diets, such as paleo and ketogenic and, and so on, is to try and even out their blood sugar a bit more so they don't have these dips and the typical tip dips people get after lunch when they need another shot of caffeine to get for the afternoon. So I'm sure probably like you could see how that could impact their performance in that way and be interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So how would you recommend someone takes oxaloacetate? Would it, it be just the 100 milligram one capsule? Would it be in the morning, uh, once daily? Uh, what would be kind of the recommended way to try this out for someone who's just normal and healthy and they're more interested in kind of the long-term benefits and so on? long-term benefits, um, we looked at the minimum amount that you could take, I believe in small measures for big effects, uh, the minimum amount over time. And we know that through the clinical trial that was done, we know that 100 milligrams was effective in reducing fasting glucose levels in diabetics. We're turning on those genes that we want to turn on. So one capsule a day It doesn't matter if you take it in the morning or the evening. What does matter is that you take it every day uh, because we're trying to increase that NAD to NADH ratio and keep it increased so that we continuously activate AMPK. And that continual activation 
is what turns on the genes and gives us the gene expression that we want to see to see extended lifespans. Great, great. Thank you. Are there any situations where you recommend people, because you're taking 300 milligrams yourself, and obviously you, you don't have the, the costs that other people would have, but um, are there other situations where you'd, rec- you'd think it would be interesting for people to, to take a slightly larger dose? Yeah, but I, I really can't recommend that as I'm not a physician. Uh, I'm a physicist. Right, right. We're getting outside of the nutritional realm again. Yeah, and, and that's a dangerous thing for us to do. Absolutely. Only our chronaxial medical food uh, for brain cancer, they would take a lot more uh, oxaloacetate. Great, great. If someone wanted to learn more about the topic of caloric restriction and oxaloacetate, where would you say, is there any books or presentations? Was there anything, uh, any other resources people could look up that would help them to learn more about this? Uh, absolutely. There's quite a bit in uh, PubMed, so they could go www.pubmed.com or .gov and uh, just type in oxaloacetate and, and calorie restriction. We've got some papers in there that uh, we've published, and they can also look at oxaloacetate and, and uh, other things like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, cancer, you know, if they're interested in that, and see what animal data there is out there right now. Um, there's not a lot of human clinical work done yet. We're in the middle of, of some of that ourselves. And they can also email me. My email address is acash, A-C-A-S-H, at benagene, B-E-N-A-G-E-N-E dot O-R-G. And uh, I typically get back to people in a couple of days with questions. Great. I can attest to that because we've been in contact before and I know you're, you're right, you make yourself very much available and uh, that's really appreciated. Are there other ways people could connect with you? I don't know if you're on Twitter. Uh, you have a website, of course, which is benagene.com. Yeah. Uh, we have a website, benagene.com. There's not a lot of information on that because uh, the FDA uh, discourages that. For instance, we can't put, legally, we can't put any animal data on our site, even though I consider humans animals. I think it's relevant, but uh, the FDA does not. Right, right, of course. So is there anyone besides yourself that you'd recommend to learn about this topic? I don't know, caloric restriction, longevity. Is there any interesting stuff you've read over the years or, or you've referred people's work? There's tremendous amounts of data on calorie restriction. Um, and there's a society, uh, the Calorie Restriction Society, where these people have been restricting their own calories for, for years, seeing tremendous results, especially in reducing atherosclerosis. In human clinical trial, we've, we've seen a, a major drop in, in atherosclerosis and blood pressure. Do you know if that's reflected by the CRP, the C-reactive protein biomarker? Because you spoke about inflammation earlier. I wasn't sure uh, if that was that marker or another one. Um, I've seen a, uh, a decrease in inflammation in our studies primarily through the mTOR pathway. I don't know if uh, C-reactive protein levels are down. We did have a, a case where, due to a genetic dysfunction, uh, an 11-year-old girl, she was in critical care. Her CT levels were up around 20,000. Wow. Yeah, yeah. She was... That's insane. Yeah, yeah. She was she was eating herself alive, essentially. And um, she was in critical care. They, they tried just about everything. And this was work done out of uh, University of California, San Diego, um, mitochondrial dysfunction department. They're doing some breakthrough work there. They ended up giving her some oxaloacetate. And in two days, her CRP levels dropped to zero and she was released from the hospital and went home. Once again, that's a case of one person and specific genetic anomaly. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. That's, uh, that's pretty impressive. In terms of uh, your own personal approach to data and body data, because we're always talking about data on this show in terms of our biologies and so on, do you track any metrics or biomarkers for your own body on a routine basis? Glucose levels. And for a guy, I'm 57 years old. My blood glucose levels are typically uh, in the low 80s, which is pretty good. Um, That's about the only thing I track regularly. I mean, I, I track my weight which is very stable. I don't count the number of, of hours I exercise or anything like that. Great. I should. <laughs> I, 
I guess, have you tracked your blood sugar over time before you started oxalic acetate or is it like um, since? So you probably wouldn't see the uh, effects. I'm just wondering if it'd be a cumulative effect from you having taken it, I assume it's years now. I, I have been taking it since uh, about 2007, which is when we introduced it into uh, the Canadian market. Basically, it, it just uh, dropped. Initially, I was up in the upper 80s to low 90s. And over time, I'm just pretty much consistently in the low 80s now. So you have seen some kind of steady decline or, or did it decline when the genes turned on and then it stayed there? It pretty much declined when the genes turned on and, and stayed there. Yeah. Now there's ways to lower it even further if if I went to a ketogenic diet. I know some people who've been doing this, uh, like Dominic D'Augustine, uh, I think his blood glucose levels are down in the 40s. Wow. Uh, yeah. yeah. But he does a very strict ketogenic diet, and he's feeding his cells with ketones instead of glucose. Yes, yeah, so well, I was interested just before we started the interview. I'm interested also in just like cancer prevention. So we had Thomas Seafried on here, and he recommended a five-day water fast twice a year. So it would be interesting to combine that with the oxoacetate. It might have a potentially beneficial upside, you know, combining those two rather than doing them separately. Yeah, we're you know we're seeing that in, in patients now. Hopefully, we'll be able to get some funding for some clinical trials to uh, combine calorie restriction with oxaloacetate in, in some of these patients uh, to take the science from our animal data, which is is very promising, but it's not human data. And uh, so hopefully, we can uh, continue our research and, and uh, help some people here. Yeah. I'm guessing it, it takes quite a while to get these clinical trials going. Would you expect this to be done over the next 10 years? Is there anything that could help you with that in terms of getting funders or what can help to push that along faster? We've taken the unusual step uh, in brain cancer of making oxaloacetate available for a disease through the Orphan Drug Act in the U.S. Uh, so this allows for various medical conditions that have scientific basis to be used for a specific disease. And in this case, we're, we're using it for brain cancer, um, which is an orphan disease. So that's helping get the word out, get some anecdotal cases, which, which I've discussed with you a little bit, and increase the interest in, in getting a clinical trial out there. We'll see how that all evolves. Great, great. Thank you. Oh, one last question, Alan. Um, what would be your number one recommendation to someone trying to use data in some way to make better decisions about their health, their performance, or their longevity? Um, I think that's a great place to start. You know the benefits of calorie restriction. And so just counting calories and reducing calories where you can would be one strategy of using data to improve your health um, if you keep track of that information. Uh, keeping track of blood glucose levels because having lower glucose levels rather than higher glucose levels is going to positively affect your health. The amount of, of time you exercise, one of the ways we've seen to increase the NAD to NADH ratio is chronic exercise. So calorie restriction is one way. Chronic exercise is another way. Uh, drugs such as metformin can increase your NAD to NADH ratio. Uh, or activate AMPK anyway, and oxaloacetate as uh, a nutritional supplement over the long term. So there, there are quite a few ways that uh, you can use data and monitor your data to positively affect your health. Alan, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really amazing having you on the show with all these interesting stories, you know, about these case studies about the, the work that you've been doing. Yes, and just as a uh, again as a disclaimer, we don't want to recommend this nutritional supplement uh, which we manufacture called Benagene, which you can get at www.benagene.com for any disease, not to diagnose, treat, prevent, or cure any disease. It's primarily we develop this to keep healthy people healthy. Great. And I take it myself too. So <laughs> I'm kind of following in your footsteps there. Well, Alan, you know, thanks again for your time today. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. All right. Thank you very much. 
To get more of the Quantified Body, subscribe on iTunes or go to the website verquantifiedbody.net. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-N-T-I-F-I-E-D-B-O-D-Y dot N-E-T. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, we are at twitter.com slash quantifiedbody. And on Facebook, we are at facebook.com forward slash quantifiedbodypodcast. If you've got feedback or requests for the show, you can email them to me at damien at thequantifiedbody.net. That's D-A-M-I-E-N at thequantifiedbody.net. Thanks for joining the show this week. See you next time.